Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of The Warning Woods. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it five stars and writing a review. Reviews help spread the podcast to more listeners. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Warning Woods. I'm Miles Tritle, and this story is called Stolen. Our daughter, Lara, has always seemed more mature than kids her age. When we look into her eyes, there's a level of comprehension and understanding behind them that just doesn't match a typical five-year-old. My wife and I noticed these things even when Lara was a newborn. Have you ever held a child just after they're born? Their eyes drift aimlessly about the room, not stopping to focus on anyone or anything. Most babies just look kind of lost, but not Lara. No, Lara would lock eyes with me or Amber, my wife, and she would hold our gaze. If someone else came into the room, she would turn her focus toward them and watch until they left. Stranger still, she hardly ever cried. In some regards, we should have considered Lara the perfect baby. She slept through the night, ate without fussing, and never put things in her mouth that she wasn't supposed to. I guess it all just seemed too good to be true. Neither of us wanted to admit it at first, but Amber and I both had trouble feeling a connection with the child. I had my suspicions that Amber was avoiding spending any more time with the child than she had to, so I decided to confess first. Lara was about 18 months old when I told my wife that I had never felt love for our child. I told her not to worry, that I wasn't going to run out on my family and abandon her to raise the girl on her own, but that I had just expected fatherhood to be a more emotional experience and not such a chore. I wasn't very surprised when Amber threw her arms around me and told me she had been feeling the same way. I was holding a glass of water and had to set it on the table so it wouldn't spill as she rocked me back and forth, crying into my shoulder. Can I tell you something strange, though? She asked after wiping away tears. She said, I do feel love, a powerful love like I've never experienced before. It's just not for Lara. I pressed her to explain what she meant. She then told me the love she felt was almost tearing her apart because it had no physical target. She felt like Lara should have been the subject of her affection, but that she simply wasn't. Amber felt as though there was someone else who needed that love, but that she just couldn't find them. I could tell by the way Amber was looking at me that she expected me to think she was crazy. 
What she was saying definitely would have sounded that way if I hadn't been experiencing the same feelings myself. I hadn't been able to describe the pull my heart felt toward an ethereal someone until my wife put it into words for me. It was at that moment that the glass of water I'd set down tipped over and fell off the edge of the table. It shattered and water splashed across the tiles. Amber and I just looked into each other's eyes and laughed. I must have set the glass too close to the edge. Caring for Lara seemed a little easier once my wife and I were able to be open about our feelings. The child hit the usual mile markers much earlier than most babies. By the time she was two, she was walking, talking, and potty trained. She was reading books on her own by age three. At some point during those first three years, the odd occurrences started happening around the house. At first, we thought Lara was just an active and careless child when we would find faucets left running and lights left on. These things were annoying, but we would just kindly remind Lara to be more thoughtful about turning things off when she was done. She claimed she had never turned them on, but we never suspected anything else was going on. Just before she turned four, Lara started attending preschool, and the teachers always commented on how advanced she was. They said she was the best student, academically speaking, but that her behavior had them concerned. We were told that Lara would often dominate other children and demand toys, snacks, and books from them. If her victim didn't comply, she would whisper things in their ears until they gave in or collapsed in tears. I asked if the teachers ever heard what Lara was saying to the children, and that's when they revealed the most concerning part. Lara was telling the children about death. Sometimes she would say simple things like, Your mommy and daddy will die someday. Other times, she was more threatening, saying things like, Do you want to know what it's like to die? Or, I can show you what dying feels like. Has Lara experienced a traumatic death in the family? One teacher asked. No, she hadn't. We didn't even let Lara watch TV enough to have seen any depictions of death. Come to think of it, we hadn't talked about death or dying with her at all. Well, the teacher continued after we explained all of that, Lara seems to think she died at some point. She keeps telling other children that she was dead before, so she knows what it's like to die. Then she tells them some pretty awful things about what she saw and felt as she died. Her descriptions are, well, they're vivid. We brought Lyra home that day and sent her outside to play so we could talk. After a long discussion, Amber and I decided Lyra must have found a book somewhere around the house that mentioned dying. We were both big fans of Stephen King and Dean Koontz, so maybe Lyra had discovered one of their novels and read a dark passage. We decided it would be best to store all of our adult novels away until she was older. Our suspicions were bolstered when we went over to the bookshelf to collect them and found every book turned backwards. The pages faced out towards us. We boxed up all the horror novels and replaced them with age-appropriate books about sharing and getting ready. Amber went to check on Lara, and I turned around to pick up the box when the shelf we had just stocked fell off. All the books tumbled to the floor, and the shelf fell on top of them with a loud smack. Upon examination... The shelf seemed fine. Nothing broke or had come loose. Unable to solve the mystery, I put the shelf and books back. At age five, Lara started to claim she was being attacked by a ghost. 
She said something kept pulling her hair and trying to push her. We tried to calm her down and tell her ghosts aren't real, but she was convinced a spirit was oppressing her. Nearly every night, there would be a little knock on our door, and I'd let Lara come sleep in our bed. One night, after about a week of Lara sleeping with us, I was woken up by that little knock and shuffled over to the door. When I opened it, Lara wasn't there. I stuck my head into the hall, but didn't see her anywhere. Samuel? I heard Amber nervously say my name. I turned to see her huddled up against the headboard with the covers pulled up to her chin. She was pointing at the foot of the bed. An impression had formed on the mattress. As we watched, it moved up the middle of the bed. Amber began whimpering as the shape got closer to her. I tried to get her to jump out of bed and come to me, but she was frozen with fear. In hindsight, I didn't go to her because I was too. The impression stopped moving once it reached the head of the mattress. It was right next to Amber. As she trembled, we both heard the whisper of a child. It said, Mommy. Amber screamed and so did I. We both broke from our stupor and ran from the room, slamming the door behind us. From down the hallway, I heard Lara's muffled cries. We ran to her room. Amber opened the door and I charged in. Lara's hair had been tied around a bedpost and her nightgown had been pulled up and tied in a way that bound her arms and gagged her. We worked quickly to free her and she collapsed into Amber's arms, shaking and crying. That may have been the first time I felt compassion for Lara. I realized that whatever was wrong with her, there was something worse going on in the house. The door slammed and all three of us heard little feet patter down the hall. I brought Amber and Lara back to our bedroom, and we locked the door and spent the rest of that sleepless night tucked up against each other. The next morning, I found a cup of coffee waiting for me beside a photo album. It was the one Amber put together after Lara was born. It documented her pregnancy, the birth, the homecoming, and most of Lara's first year with us. I sat down at the table and started flipping through the album. The third page contained a clipping from our local newspaper that listed all the births from that day, including Lara's. We saved it for her, but I didn't remember the circle drawn around it in red crayon. I took a sip of coffee and almost spat it out. It was room temperature and so weak it almost tasted like water. I got up and dumped the mug into the sink. It really was just water, but at the bottom I found a sludgy black layer of coffee grounds. I wondered if Lara had tried to make the coffee for me, but she was finally sound asleep in our bedroom. I doubted she would have come out of there on her own after the harrowing events of the previous night. I heard a sound as I pondered the coffee mystery and turned around. Someone had drawn more circles around the newspaper clipping. Wild, erratic circles. And there was now a red crayon resting near the album. I returned to my chair and pulled the newspaper clipping from its plastic sleeve. I read through the list of births, then turned it over. On the back of the silver paper was part of an obituary. It described the life of a young holistic medicine doctor. That was her official title anyway. I looked up the obituary online so I could read the whole thing. The woman, I read, often referred to herself as a shaman, or, occasionally, a witch. On the day Lara was born, the woman was performing a ritual that went terribly wrong. They rushed her to the hospital where she died minutes later. She died in the same hospital 
and at nearly the same time that Lara was born. I heard Amber scream my name from the bedroom. I jumped up and ran to her. I didn't notice the crayon had disappeared from the table. I threw open the door to see Amber sitting on the bed pointing at the mirror across the room. Written across the mirror in red crayon were the words, She took my body. Lara had picked up a sock from the floor and was frantically trying to wipe away the crayon. It's not true, she was crying. I'm your little girl. It's not true. But who would you believe? Your own daughter or the witch who stole her body? You can support The Warning Woods by clicking the Anchor Support link in the description or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. Of course, the best way to help is by writing a review and following this podcast in Apple Podcasts or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.